A note to listeners, the following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Previously on Father Wants Us Dead. He had to do a lot of planning because you don't just wipe out a young family and not leave a trace. And then John became, I guess, enraged because he, he put 10 bullets into that little boy. And that was the most that outraged anybody. I mean, the, the horrific murder of that little boy. Gradually over a month, I think of November, the lights were going out here and there. Yeah, well, it was, it was a shocking sight to see. You know, somebody that would take and kill his whole family and disappear. A man walks into a social security office. He's tall but disarming with his politeness, pushing his glasses up his nose as he explains he lost his social security card. He's handed a form and in his messy handwriting, jots down a generic name and birth date. He has to wait a few minutes and manages to look bored even though he's really filled with anticipation. Then the person behind the counter hands him his new card and he's out the door. A new man. Apparently, that's all you need, at least in 1971. A new name, a social security card, and the confidence of a middle-aged white man, and you can just disappear into the ranks of the general public and start all over. It doesn't matter that he's one of the most brutal and notorious killers New Jersey has ever seen. He's changed his identity easily and left behind his life and his dead family in Westfield, New Jersey. By the time the bodies of his wife, mother, and three children are found in the mansion where he murdered them, he has a four-week head start on his new life. And he's no longer John Amel List. He's chosen a name as inconspicuous as he is, Robert P. Clark. I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. And this is Father Wants Us Dead, a podcast about the John List murders from NJ.com and the Star Ledger. It's December 8th, 1971. Newspapers are landing on lawns across New Jersey, leading with a story more disturbing than any in recent memory. It hit like a bomb. The Star-Ledger headline read, Westfield Tragedy, Husband Hunted in Mass Slaying. It said a letter had been found, but the motive for the killings was unknown. Barney Tracy said it was all anyone could talk about, in and out of Union County. And of course, this was so much worse for those that were close with the lists. And we talked with these friends about how hard it was to try to process this in the days that followed. I mean, for a lot of them, this was their first funeral. Right, and because the family wasn't cremated after all, there are five caskets. That's a lot of pallbearers, and some of them are just kids. Like Fred's best friend, Rick Bader. I remember carrying the casket, which was heavier than I thought it was going to be. And I remember TV vans and TV cameras all over the place outside the church. How old were you at that time? in eighth grade, so 13 years old. And we also heard that some of them were terrified, or at least sufficiently creeped out for months or even years. 
And you might think that sounds kind of silly now, but I think the unimaginable horror of that scene, the mystery of it, and the fact that no one could imagine this dad murdering his whole family, it sparked a real fear in people. And people didn't know where he was. For kids especially, it was like we've said, a boogeyman mentality. Here's Rick Bader again. At the same time in which this all happened, my parents were putting an addition onto our house, a first floor master bedroom. And I actually had reoccurring nightmares that somehow he had a hidden compartment underneath the house. You know, somehow he had a hidden compartment underneath there and that's where he was staying. And as this case becomes the obsession in and around Westfield, the nightmares and fear keep accumulating. What if he's still out there? What if he's lurking next door? And what if he's going to kill again? Our manhunt kicks off as soon as the bodies are discovered a month later. John List, mass murderer, is on the run. He's not just escaping from police. He's escaping his life, his financial ruin, and the loved ones he executed when he came to see them as burdens. The FBI and local police find themselves on a wild goose chase that goes on for years, taking them down countless dead ends and generating all these insane rumors. At one point, people even thought List might have hijacked a plane and jumped out of it. But here's the thing, Jess. John List, despite his lack of sophistication and resources, was somehow able to pull off one of the most successful disappearing acts we've seen in modern American crime. But it's not like he has a helicopter waiting or a secret network of tunnels or anything as cool as that. He just had a head start and a few tricks up his sleeve. And we'll take you through them in this episode, as well as what comes next for John List. Rebirth. He got a new name, a new wife, and a new life. In a way, he's a version of this very American fantasy, like The Great Gatsby or The Talented Mr. Ripley, that you can cast off one life you don't like and make a new one. And why is he able to pull off this great escape? First, there's the fact that he just doesn't stand out in any way. No one is going to notice this guy. And two, List's lack of remorse allows him to start over and blend in, because he can just walk around as though nothing ever happened. In this episode, we'll learn more about the psychological portrait of this killer, how it factored into his crimes, and how it helped him leave it all behind when it was convenient so he could keep fooling everyone until the day the dominoes started cascading down. And we shouldn't be surprised it was this easy for him, Jess. This is the guy who sat down and made a sandwich. The man who was able to get a full night's sleep in the same house as the bodies of his murdered family. And we know at least one reason why he could do it. We're just getting started, but we're about to get to the heart of what made John List tick. One thing's for sure, John List's escape was as meticulous as his killings. After police discover Helen and the children laid out on sleeping bags in the ballroom, and then Alma dead upstairs, they notice something else. List has torn himself out of every family photo he can find. He later admits he burned them and his passport in his Weber grill, knowing police would want his image for their manhunt. 
I asked then-assistant prosecutor Michael Mitzner what law enforcement was thinking in the mansion that night as they're going over every clue. Would List have killed himself after what he'd done? Or was he already maybe an ocean away? In situations like that, if someone's going to commit suicide, they generally do it right after they commit the homicide. But there was a feeling that that could well happen later when he had a chance to dwell on what he had actually done. Right, and at the same time, that the tone of the letter gave the impression that he intended to get away and continue living. Yeah, that's for sure. It was a race to catch up with John List. Police are tracking down anyone who knew him, trying to find out where he might go. Then, a clue. Two days after the bodies are found, police get the call that List's Chevy Impala was found parked at JFK Airport in Queens. Mitzner said a leading theory was that List had fled to Germany. Besides the car at the airport, his passport was gone, he spoke German, and he had been there before. List's relatives told FBI agents that that was a good guess. He even had some distant relatives there. Documents we got from the feds also show a worker at the German consulate in New York said a man matching List's description asked about a visa, saying he was leaving soon, traveling alone, and spoke German. These FBI documents, all the memos and reports, offer a window into this really frenzied search involving not just local and FBI officials, but even international authorities. In Westfield, everyone had a theory. There was talk he reinvented himself as a chicken farmer in rural South Jersey. But there was also a theory that he might have been the infamous hijacker D.B. Cooper. And that one's not just a rumor. The FBI really investigated it. I hadn't heard of this guy before, Jess, but it is a wild story. The FBI says it's still one of their greatest unsolved cases ever. Okay, so here's the D.B. Cooper story. A man with the fake name Dan Cooper gets on a Northwest Orient Airlines flight and flashes what looks like a bomb in his briefcase. He demands $200,000 and four parachutes. And when he gets it, he grabs the cash and jumps, just parachutes out into the night. And he was never found. Agents showed a photo of List to the witnesses, and they said he wasn't their hijacker. But the FBI wasn't convinced. List was still a suspect for the hijacking as late as 1990. You can really see why this theory about John List as D.B. Cooper took off in the media and captured imaginations for years. I feel like it was part of this whole lore around John List that just never really went away. He was so mysterious and unknown. Maybe he was crazy enough to jump out of an airplane. I mean, anything was possible after what he'd done. But John List is not D.B. Cooper. And he wasn't a chicken farmer in South Jersey. And he wasn't going to Germany. After parking his car at the airport to throw police off his trail, John List took buses and trains across the country on a non-direct route, using fake names to buy the tickets, until he ended up in his new home, a hotel in Denver, Colorado. How come Colorado? He said he wanted somewhere far enough away and also considered Phoenix, but it was too hot, and San Francisco, but there were too many hippies. And List later told a psychiatrist that he thought he might want to see the mountains. Can you believe that crap? A trip to the mountains. And he makes it there, no problem. No surveillance video or cell phone pings to get in the way. 
Here's Jeffrey Paul Hummel, who worked for the prosecutor's office when they were trying to track down List. If John List had attempted to try and disappear into the fabric of society like he did in 1971, 50 years ago, I think it would have been utterly impossible because of the fact that we all have digital footprints, we have all the technology that's available. I think it would have been extremely difficult for him to assume another life. I doubt it. I doubt it very much. This couldn't have happened. Back then, without a problem. He did it, and he stayed that way for almost 18 years. And he did it as you would expect. He was meticulous in his planning and determined to stay one step ahead. For his new persona as Robert Clark, he grows a mustache, buys a cap, and wears it low. He dresses way more casual than before. No more suits. But it's not like his picture is in the paper every day here. There's no 24-hour cable news on this. In his memoir, he said he only saw a single news story in Denver about it. He wondered where police had gotten the photo from. The FBI files we got answered that. He apparently missed one photo in the house. And they also grabbed one from a church directory. And they don't only have photos. The FBI is blasting out all the info they have on Fugitive IO4480. And they've got everything on him. His two scars, his neat clothes, even his brisk military gait and his protrusive nose. The level of detail is really something. They know he has a stamp collection, that he likes military strategy games, even what kind of coat he bought before he left. From his doctor, they even learned he had hemorrhoids. They, of course, know all about the money he swiped from his mother, but he has a problem. That two grand is going fast, and John Liss knows it. If he's going to keep the charade going, he needs a job. And he gets a job. Not in accounting, but as a line cook at a Holiday Inn. List is doing exactly what he could have done when he was hiding at the train station back in Westfield. He got an unglamorous job to help pay the bills. Here's Barney Tracy. He really wanted to be, you know, undercover, unseen. He didn't want to cause any tension to himself. So he took menial jobs. He became a short-order cook. Okay, Jess, I have a story about this job that's really going to floor you. You remember I spoke to Tim Seifert, whose mother was Helen List's sister. Tim said that like the authorities, they kind of assumed he went overseas. But he was closer than they thought. I'm going to let him tell you the rest. Um, We later found out that he was a cook at a Holiday Inn in Denver, in the Denver area. And we would stay at that same hotel whenever we would go skiing. Wow. So that was the very same hotel that you guys would stay at? That is an insane coincidence. Yeah. So, I mean, that could have, you know, our paths could have crossed. What are the chances, Rebecca? And imagine learning something like that after the fact. The guy could have been cooking you breakfast. Tim Seifert told me it's his theory List never thought he'd be caught because he just believed he was so much smarter than everyone. And at least at first, he isn't taking risks. He lays low. He pays cash for a trailer. He's not going to church for the first time in his life. It's too risky. Authorities might look for him in a Lutheran church. But Bob Clark does start to let his guard down. He loses the mustache, makes a few friends, and according to his memoir, he starts doing tax prep several years after the murders and eventually goes back to full-time accounting. By 1976, he's also ready to go back to church. And shortly after that, he's ready to start 
dating again. In 1977, six years after he murdered his first wife, List is looking for love. He meets a tall 35-year-old divorcee at a singles event for Lutherans, the woman who would become his second wife, Dolores Miller. People we talked to who knew Dolores said she was nice, reserved, kind of indecisive, and a bit of a worrier. But of course, she would have a lot of things to worry about later, when she learned the truth. Because at this point, she has no idea. She'll later tell reporters that Bob Clark said his first wife died of cancer and he had no kids. And unlike his rushed marriage to Helen, they actually dated for eight years before they got married. They waited until 1985, the same year he moved into her condo in Aurora, outside of Denver. Their next-door neighbor was a woman named Wanda Flannery. She would become an important part of what would happen to Bob Clark next. From what we heard, she honestly sounds like the kind of grandma or aunt you would totally want to hang out with. Bubbly, kind, not above a little gossip or reading the tabloids. Unfortunately, the Flannerys and their daughter, Ava Mitchell, have all died. But we found Wanda's son-in-law, Randy Mitchell. It actually took a lot of digging. I found his sister and she gave me his number. Randy said he lived in the same development and would often hang out at Wanda's house. That's where he first met Bob and Dolores Clark. Dolores and Wanda were essentially best friends and always at each other's houses, chatting. So I'm the reporter with NJ.com who's hoping to talk about the John List case. Yeah, I, I remember. I guess then his name was Bob Clark. I talked to him a few times. He seemed like a normal guy to me. I mean, he was real nice to me. He never really looked at me in the eyes. He'd always uh, look at a distance when he talked. But I, I never took that suspicion or anything. Right, like but maybe he was just a little uncomfortable in those sort of situations? Might have been. Unless he had some kind of, well, you know he had some guilt deep down because of what he did. He had to have. Yeah, no, it's hard to know how someone could could do that and then go on and live a second life. Yeah, you never know who who your neighbors are anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine you look at any of your neighbors the same way. Not after learning the truth about Bob Clark. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The truth at this point is that shortly after his marriage, things are not going great for Bob Clark. And for a very John-list reason. He got fired from his accounting job. By 1987, after a few failed business ventures, he's looking at maybe going broke all over again. So he goes across the country to Virginia to interview for jobs. And he gets one doing tax returns for a firm in downtown Richmond. And that's how John List finds himself back in Virginia, the state where he met Helen 36 years earlier. Remember, it's been 16 years since the murders, and while authorities are still trying to find him, 
His story at this point isn't really a fugitive story anymore. It's a hiding in plain sight story. And after 16 years of people obsessing about it, it's now almost mythic. Right, like John List is an urban legend come to life. The neighbor hiding his true nature beneath his nice suit. I think that's one reason this story is so scary. And I think that's why it's inspired so many movies. And this is the perfect time to talk about one of them that's very well known. The Stepfather. It came out in 87 and developed such a cult following that there were even sequels and a remake in 2009. I watched the original last night on Amazon Prime and I actually loved it. Does it stick to the list story? Kind of because it's about a stepdad, not a dad. He apparently kills each family he marries into when they eventually disappoint him. And then he carefully creates a new identity, sounds familiar, and starts the whole process again. But here's the wild thing I didn't realize until later. This was before the world knew the truth about John List. So at least in the premise, the movie got it right. That List did remarry an unsuspecting woman. Right. In 1987, he's two years into his second marriage. In real life, he hasn't killed anyone else yet, but he has created a whole new world for himself. And he certainly isn't the shell of a man you would expect of someone who slaughtered his innocent family. And now, that's what we want to get into. How John List is doing, and why. Why he can just stroll around Richmond perfectly happy after what he did. And what does it tell us about his mental state or his mental health? and why he was able to commit these crimes and then seemingly forget them. We knew there were people in Virginia who knew Bob Clark, and we knew we needed their help to make sense of this. So that's why Rebecca and I found ourselves heading down 95 to Richmond this past June. Yeah, I feel like I should apologize. Missed the recording, but Rebecca just made the ultimate Jersey slide into a turn that we were about to miss. Is this bus gonna go? Now, when List first moves to Richmond, Dolores stays back in Colorado while he looks for a house to buy. And in the meantime, he rents a room in a Richmond suburb from a charming Southern gentleman named Wally Parsons. They become pretty good friends. Wally Parsons died 10 years ago, but before we headed to Richmond, I decided to call up his son. I'm leaving a message on the answering machine when Jeff picks up, which of course is super awkward. I'm just calling to, hi. I'm trying to track everyone down here who was involved with, with the John List story. Was that your dad who used to know John List when he was? Yeah, yeah. He lived, well, you know, I feel weird talking about it only because I don't know who the hell you are, but it's not a big deal, I <laughs> yeah. guess. That's, that's, yeah, he, he lived in our house. I love Jeff. I mean, that's a reaction you're going to get sometimes when you cold call people and you know all this stuff about their family. So I did explain who the hell I was. And Jeff said his dad and John List stayed in touch for many years, even after the truth came out about Bob Clark. When I got married, I got a wedding card from John List. And of course, my wife chucked it. I kind of wish I had it just, just, to, just to have it. But I actually do have, when my father passed, like I've got lots of letters from John List. Really? Unopened. But there's tons of them, you know, if you, if you want me to mail you a couple, I could do that. We're actually going to be in Richmond next week. Can we come and see those letters? I would die <laughs> if I could do that. So Jeff obliges us and has us meet him in the parking lot of a Home Depot in Richmond. He says to meet him by the mulch and then gets out of his pickup truck, 
holding a large Ziploc bag of letters John List sent his dad over the years. For like team building, like they do, we do stuff like two truths and a lie, and I'll say I'm a Washington Redskins fan. I love NASCAR and I live with a mass murderer. And so everybody picks like, <laughs> you know, which one's a lie? They think that that's a lie, but it's not. Right. You know, so it's that's like a great that. story. And then you literally, so these were buried somewhere that when you, you called, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, I'm over looking at my pantry and I find this one. You just happened to call. Jeff said he was in college at the time, but he'd stop by and have breakfast or lunch with his dad and any renters. This one tenant would always pray before he ate. The only thing I remember is that having lunch with him, we prayed a lot, which you wonder why, right? Yeah. Um, you know, always had a tie on and there's a little uh, pocket protector, kind of nerdy. Yeah. Glasses. Pocket protector, yeah. A little, like, it, it was like counting or something. Yeah. Right? yeah. So he, he lived that <laughs> at home. You know, easy to talk to as far as I could remember. He said Bob Clark seemed calm, serious, and he was a fairly good conversationalist. Certainly no dummy. As for the letters, Jeff let us read a bunch of them. He even gave us one, but he wouldn't let us open others that were still sealed. He said in one letter, List actually confirmed to Wally that he was not that infamous hijacker, D.B. Cooper. We'll get deeper into these letters later, but for now we're going to stay in Richmond, where Bob Clark is settling in at his new job. We wanted to know what Bob was like at work, so we called up his old coworker, Les Wingfield. He said Bob Clark's tax prep work wasn't great, and he seemed too old to be in such a low-level position. A staff accountant, just like Les, who at that point was in his mid-20s. And List was even older than he said he was, 62, and trying to pass his 56. Les described him as kind of odd and serious and said it didn't take much to make him grouchy. Like he got all huffy when Les declined his suggestion that they carpool together. Or, and I love this example, If there were no paper towels in the bathroom, he would just announce it really loud to show he was ticked off. But he was so junior level, there was nothing he could do about it. Because John List had to have everything just so, Rebecca. So not surprisingly, Les wasn't fond of Bob Clark. But there was at least one person in the office who was. The secretary, a woman named Sandra Silberman. In his memoir, List said they were good friends. Unfortunately, she died late last year, but we did speak with one of her children and her husband, Ludwig, who goes by Lou. He said Sandra used to gush about how Bob Clark doted on his wife, calling her from the office at lunch every day just to check in. She told Lou he should be more like that. He he was very solicitous. (laughs) Oh, he sounded much more solicitous about his wife than I was about my wife. Here's John List being so sweet to his second wife. And all I can think of is what he did to his first. Well, let's talk about how things were going at this point with Bob and Dolores. They didn't have a lot of money, but they finally found a house they liked in Midlothian, just outside of Richmond. So they were reunited and settling into this quiet little home life in this beautiful, woodsy, planned community called Brander Mill. Rebecca and I are here with NJ.com videographer Andre Malloch at this ranch at the end of a cul-de-sac where Bob and Dolores Clark lived in the late 80s. We have no idea who lives here now, and we're figuring out how best to approach them. But it is kind of interesting to be here and a little spooky. Yeah. 
but it's also just like such a nice neighborhood. I mean, I can definitely see that all the neighbors would be like, you wouldn't expect a murderer to be living next door. Yeah. Are we all going or no need what, for What is the plan? My favorite part of working on this podcast, or any big story really, is the characters you meet along the way. You just never know what that person on the other end of the phone line is going to have to say, what they'll be like, and then somehow you build a connection. Knocking on someone's door, though, that's even trickier. Hi. 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 <laughs> We're reporters from New Jersey. We're um, doing a project about guy named John List. Does that name mean anything to you? Uh, John List? Yeah. So the guy lived here before? Yeah. And then, to our complete delight, we meet Rodrigo Warwatapia. The 21-year-old greeted us sleepy-eyed and barefoot, apologizing for the mess as he and his younger brother, Alvaro, had just held a big party last night. What's your name? My name is Rod. I go by Hot Rod. Love a nickname. The brothers thought they had heard the name John List before, but they had no idea who he really was or that a mass murderer who was on the lam lived in their house. Until, well, we told them. So, you know, he never murdered anyone here, oh, but... <laughs> you, I was both like, oh, that brings... I can sleep better now. We've talked to dozens of people who know the case well. That's not these guys. But this interview perfectly captures the response of people who first hear about the murders. Went by the name Bob Clark, and his second wife didn't know, apparently, that he was a killer. Can you imagine? I, for starters, I don't know, like, it's the thing that's very intriguing is, like, how can man could be as peaceful enough to do that? Restart, just like, you know, get away with restart, it, restart, restart his it. life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and new like, identity, new wife. Yeah. He didn't this seem- is the best place, though, to do it, to restart your life. Other than a coat of paint, the ranch looks pretty much the same as it did in the late 80s, based on the photos we've seen. The brothers said their mother liked the house because of the nice neighborhood. I don't think she knew about any, like, serial killer fugitive or, no, family killer fugitive, like, <laughs> running just, away. And just she, the name. she probably would have mentioned that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. she's... I mean, to be this, like, you know, in depth, like, this man leaving this, like, you know... An entire bloody massacre, a blood trail all the way here, and it connects here. It's kind of, it's weird. We knew Hot Rod and Alvaro were Googling List as soon as the door shut. Yeah, it actually was a good reminder of how this story, the, the crime, the second life, captivates and draws people in instantly, even 50 years later. That's what I took away from it. We were, of course, also trying to talk to others in the neighborhood who had known Bob and Dolores, but the few we reached declined interviews. But we did get to speak with another person who knew them in Richmond, Reverend Joseph Vogt. He has since retired, but he was the pastor at the Lutheran church Bob and Dolores attended every Sunday. I would characterize them as shy and and somewhat retiring. Um, They were not extroverts. Uh, They seemed devoted to each other, um, but we're not, uh, we're not exuberant or especially extrovert. We had a nice, I, I recall a nice conversation about their life in Denver and, um, the move and, and the fact that they had been Lutheran. He would get to know the couple a little better down the road under some strange conditions that we'll get into later. 
He said Bob seemed to take his faith seriously, mentioned growing up in that more conservative sect, and said he used to teach Sunday school in New Jersey. It's interesting that at this point, List wasn't bothering to hide that he lived in New Jersey. I guess he felt pretty comfortable already in his new church community. And there was someone else who noticed when Bob and Dolores Clark joined the church. Jerome Kendall, K-E-N-D-A-L-L. We visited Jerome Kendall and his wife at their home, south of Richmond. In the late 80s, they were members of that same church. Jerome kept in touch with John List for years. His first impression about Bob was that nothing stood out to him about Bob. If Bob was wearing a brown suit and it was a paneled room, he might have faded into, you know, the background. He just wasn't at all showy. In retrospect, but only in retrospect, he seemed a little furtive. He looked over his shoulder at me a couple of times, but, you know, I didn't think anything about it. He got the impression they liked to keep to themselves. And Jerome said it was only later that he realized how little List was giving away. You know, in in an ironic way, there was obviously an enormous amount about Bob that was below the surface. But as I knew him and as he uh, presented himself to the world, he was, you know, possibly two inches deep. He was a surface person. He was an accountant and all that that implies. We'll be right back. And now, let's get into what was going on below the surface. How can List be living this normal life and not racked with guilt? On the anniversary of the killings, is he just like, ho-hum, it's another Tuesday? I had this same thought, Rebecca. And I put this to Stephen Simmering, the psychiatrist who List would spill his guts to later. I asked him if List felt remorse or guilt at this time in his life. He actually told me that in the early days in Denver, where he finally found himself, he would think about what happened. And he said regretted it. But as time went on, it left his mind and he didn't think about it a whole lot. So this is where Dr. Simring is really going to shed some light on John List's mind. He would later interview List for hours, and I could have sat and talked with him for hours about all he learned. List described to him everything, from his upbringing to each murder and how he thought out what he would do. Simmering said he was obsessive and detail-oriented. He often missed the forest for the trees and got stuck on one way of thinking. He was rigid beyond rigid. So his choices of a universe of choices came down to three choices. Run away, go bankrupt, kill his family. Not everything your average person decides to do. So he rejected bankrupt because that's certainly a sin. He rejected suicide because every religious person knows that suicide is really a sin. But his strict Lutheran upbringing declared that pretty close to unpardonable. So he was left in his reasoning with killing his family. Obviously, killing his whole family is also a terrible sin. But List believed that if he repented and led a good, pious life, he would be forgiven. 
And it's Liszt's way of thinking, his belief that he knew what was best and his propensity for rationalizing. That's why he could do these things and live a new life free of guilt. But Dr. Simring said this isn't psychosis. This isn't where someone has a break from reality. But there are other classes of mental disorder that one wouldn't even think of as illness, just peculiarities. And these are called personality disorders. He meets clearly the criteria for obsessive compulsive personality. These are individuals who are emotionally isolated. They're not cruel, but they're emotionally isolated. They don't show feelings. They don't have very much in the way of feelings. They don't cry a whole lot. They're not emotional. They are very, very detail-oriented. They rationalize things that happen. They don't lie as an antisocial person would do, but they'll rationalize it. They'll give a seemingly logical explanation, as he did. He gave a seemingly logical explanation that he had three choices and he took the best one. I mean, looking at it at a distance, you say, oh my God. But he is so focused on little details, he misses the large picture, is not good at picking up emotions in other people, is not empathic. Not that he's cruel, but he lacks empathy, doesn't really get what other people are about, doesn't really read other people, which I think continually got him into trouble and enabled him to have the mindset to do these things that coldly. So List did have obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. It's important to know this is very different than obsessive-compulsive disorder, which many people may be more familiar with. Dr. Simring is saying that List's personality, including his lack of emotional depth, was why he could just start a whole new life and basically not feel anything about what he had done. And now we can see how it also contributed to the killings themselves. Dr. Simring said List wasn't a psychopath. He didn't act with zero care for the feelings of others, but he did lack some normal human empathy for those victims. And his personality, let him rationalize it to the point that he could do it. And then after, he didn't really feel strongly about it. So he's just able to move on, live this peaceful life, doing taxes by day and reading his historical books with Dolores every night. But about 300 miles away in Westfield, New Jersey, people have not forgotten about him. Sure, most had moved on with their lives, But the crime was still very real for many. That includes, of course, the detectives who were still trying to crack the case. By the time Barney Tracy took over the case in the late 70s, there hadn't been a good lead on list in years. By the 80s, many thought it was hopeless. But Tracy couldn't shake the feeling that maybe someday, list might come back. The uh, family was buried in in Fairview, cemetery, the mother and the three children. And I was kind of like obsessed with thinking like maybe John will show up someday for closure or whatever. You'd go by that every now and then and there'd be flowers there. And you'd go on there and look for a tag on the flowers and it would be a relative or a friend of Patty's or something. But I did that the entire time. It was always just became part of my my beat. But I did mark the dates of their births and um, and go there on those days thinking I had a shot, but 
he just wasted a lot of gasoline. <laughs> he also tried to keep the story alive by keeping it in the news. Reporter Gabe Gluck was writing a 15th anniversary story in the Star-Ledger in 1986, and he said the cops were eager to help. They hoped that maybe, this time, some lead, anything new, would come from it. Crickets. Crickets is what came from the 15th anniversary story, which, you know, was fine. I put all, put all my notes in a folder and said, OK, I'll use them on my 20th anniversary story. They were running out of ideas. All the traditional policing methods had failed to bring them at all close to catching this mass murderer. So what do you do then? You try something new, something unconventional, something no one could have imagined in 1971. And you go all in on this one last kind of wacky idea. And sometimes, you come up big. We'll tell you that whole improbable story in our next episode. I'd like to show you some more of the case file in depth. So he says, certainly. So we took him up to the room, our hotel room. We spread the crime scene photos all over the beds. I think people were like, you know, they're really going overboard. They're wasting the time. We got other cases going on, active cases going on. Okay, so you got no leads. What about a picture? We have a 21-year-old picture. I go, no leads, no picture. This went out to millions and millions of households across the United States. If somebody has seen List, if somebody knows List, there's going to be a connection. Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advance Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound On Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music, and Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malak. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. You can visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story, including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. And you can email us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. Subscribe to Father Wants Us Dead wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, please rate and review it and help us spread the word.